0: You're listening to Girls with Grafts, a burn community podcast created by Phoenix Society for Burn Survivors, a leading nonprofit dedicated to supporting the burn community. In this podcast, we'll talk with burn survivors, share resources to help with supporting and improving burn recovery, and discuss how to prevent burn injuries. Here are your hosts, burn survivors and Phoenix Society's marketing team, Amber Wilcox and Rachel Kudlak. Hello and welcome back to Girls with Graphs. I'm Rachel Kudlack, one of your hosts, and I'm joined today with by my co-host Amber Wilcox. Hi there. How's everyone doing today? I'm doing good. I'm excited for
1: our bonus episode today. I know I am too, and um, I think it's definitely an important episode that will spread some additional awareness as well. So, um, without further ado. Um, So we're excited to release this episode in honor of the 20th anniversary of the station nightclub fire, um, which is today. And so we have brought some special guests on to speak with us about that event and uh, kind of dive into it a little bit more. So, Mm -hmm. Rachel, do you want to introduce today's
0: guests? Yes. And before I welcome our two guests today, I do want to give a special thank you to the National Fire Sprinkler Association. NFSA is a longstanding Phoenix partner, and for over a century, they've been advocating for a stronger industry and a safer world by promoting fire sprinklers in model codes and legislation. So advocacy is one of the topics we're going to dive in with our guests today. So I'm really excited to welcome Gina Russo to the podcast. She was born and raised in Cranston, Rhode Island, and she is a mother to two amazing sons and has worked at the local hospital for 32 years. In 2003, her and her fiancé attended a concert at the Station Nightclub in West Warwick, Rhode Island. That turned into a deadly blaze, killing 100 people, including her fiancé, Alfred. Gina survived the accident with third and fourth degree burns to over 40% of her body, and she only learned about her fiancé's death after coming out of a medically induced coma 12 weeks later. In 2009, she self-published a book titled From the Ashes, It was written for a therapeutic reason, but she wanted to share her story with others. And she's very proud to say and to share that the book went on to sell for over 3,500 copies and opened up a world for her of public speaking about living and surviving such a tragic event. Today, she is a Phoenix SOAR peer supporter and loves giving back and helping new survivors navigate their new life and get back to living. She has been married to her husband, Stephen, for 15 years and loves her life as a burn survivor and what, it, and what it has opened up for her. She's grateful for the opportunity to meet so many amazing people and the community to help others. And along with Gina, we also have the CEO of Phoenix Society, Amy Acton. She is a returning guest, um, and we're so happy to have both Gina and Amy on today's podcast.
2: It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. Great to be here on this
3: uh, very important podcast. Welcome, both of you.
1: Well, um, I know that <clears throat> some details and background about the event. So the station nightclub fire occurred on the evening of February 20th, 2003, mm-hmm. um, which would be our 20th anniversary or your 20th anniversary, Gina, mm-hmm. um, in West Warwick, Rhode Island, where 100 people were killed and over 230 were injured. Mm-hmm. Uh, the blaze began when the band Jack Russell's Great White took the stage mm-hmm. and set off for large fireworks. Um, so Gina, I'm going to turn it over to you to take us back to that day. Um, I'm a native of Rhode Island myself and so I do very much remember that day, um, even 20 years ago. Um, so do you wanna tell us a little bit about heading to the concert and what took place that night? and Maybe a little bit about what you remember?
2: Sure. Um, uh, so February 20th, um, a very cold, snowy, lots of snow that day. Um, Fred and I, Alfred, Fred, we called him Fred, Love live music. Um, and that Thursday night, he happened to be at my mom's house for dinner and he asked he wanted to go see a particular movie. Ended up, long story short, we missed the movie time, but Fred, being Fred, went online to see if there was any karaoke going on, any music anywhere. And the station nightclub popped up and he said, That's right, great white's there tonight. Do you want to go? And now this time, it's about, it's about 10, 15, 10, 10. Um, so at 10, 20, we called the club to see if we could still buy tickets. And they said, sure, come on down. We got, we didn't, he didn't live far away from there. We got there about 10, 30, 10, bought a drink, said hello to a couple of people at the bar, then walked right to the front of the stage um, there was a gentleman, uh, the local disc jockey, uh, we called him Dr. Metal. His name is Mike Gonzales. He was Him and Fred were talking about upcoming baseball season. Then it was time for Mike to introduce the band. And I can still see Jack Russell and the band coming through the fire exit door, taking the stage. Jack, Jack said a few words. And as soon as he went into his song, Desert Moon, the pyrotechnics just went up. And life changed really quick. Um, <clears throat> we knew immediately. Fred knew immediately something was wrong. He could see the that the curtain that was hanging behind the drummer. There was a spark on it, and he kept saying, "This is going to be bad. This is really bad." I re- we put our drink at Jack Russell's feet, and then took about three to four steps to a fire exit. And there was a bouncer there, we're screaming, "There's a fire! There's a fire!" Open the door, and he was adamant that it was club policy: band only could go through that door everything's in seconds that I'm, uh, that I, in my world, that's what I remember. And I remember Fred just saying, we can't stand here and argue with this guy. We've got to go. And he he turned me around and we started to make our way towards the entrance, the only other entrance we knew of. And at some point he put his hand on the middle of my back and pushed me and screamed, go. And he literally just shoved me. And I, I made it to that front door when I tried to turn around to see where Fred was, it was just mass chaos. Uh, glass was shattering. I, what I've called black rain over the years, the ceiling was melting and Fred was just not in my line of vision. And I just remember praying to God, let my kids forgive me for dying in this place. I, you know, I hope they have a good life. And I remember going down and hitting the hardwood floors, my breath just getting shorter and shorter and like, like a stabbing pain in my throat. And, uh, I don't know. By the grace of God, by somebody, an, an incredible firefighter, I woke up um, twelve weeks later from a medically induced coma, and that was just a whole other world.
0: <laughs> yeah. So how was how was that recovery? You know, you're you're recovering from a physical injury, but then you also have you know the emotional recovery of not only you know what burn survivors go through emotionally, but on top of also losing your fiance. So how was that? And maybe what helped you? What helped you keep going?
2: Sure. Um, Oh, it was horrible. Um, I I was when I came out of the coma, I had a trach. And um, I remember trying to ask my family where Fred was, my children happened to be visiting that day. And they all pretended they couldn't read my lips. They would statter. They would do all kinds of things. But a week after waking up, they removed the trait to see if I could breathe on my own. And I said to my sister, you know, where is Fred? And she said, he's not here. And I said, well, okay, what hospital is he in? And then she said, no, he didn't make it, Gina. He never made it out of the club. I, I just remember going blank, um, a psychiatrist coming in. And talking to me about survivor guilt, it, but I couldn't hear anything. I really didn't hear him. Um, it was quite an adjustment. I knew I was burned. I could see the 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 gauze the go- the and the wrapping, and but I, I really had no idea it was to that extent how bad it was. It was just, my God, this incredible man died, and I didn't even know it. Then there was a funeral. There was all this stuff. Um, That probably was worse for me than the burn injuries, the lung injuries. It took a lot longer. It took a lot longer to comprehend that, that that this incredible man was no longer walking this earth. Uh, Learning about the injuries, um, (laughs) it sounds so ridiculous now when I think back on it. Um, A a nurse was changing my head uh, wrapping, and um, my head was burned fourth degree. So I remember the nurse being in the room and she's taking the dressing down and then she's putting new medication on. And she said, don't worry about it. They can reconstruct your left ear. I'm like, what are you talking about? I can hear you. And she said, oh, uh uh-oh. She ran out of the room. In comes some doctors to explain that, yes, I could hear, but I had lost my outer ear. I, the dumbest thing, and I'm still upset about it. I cannot wear earrings and I want to wear earrings. (laughs) So I remember thinking that like, how ridiculous, like later on, you know, how ridiculous. I'm so blessed to be alive and I'm worried about earrings. Um, Then they started to talk about all the other injuries um, that my hair would never grow back. I'd be bald for the rest of my life. And um, my back uh, has third degree burns and my arms do. And so I have had lots of grafting. They started off with cadaver skin but it didn't work so then they started harvesting skin for my legs and um, now I call that my quilt because you can see the patchwork on my legs (laughs) Um, but it's it's truly okay it's okay it it's an adjustment Um, looking at yourself for the first time and I didn't see myself until um, the beginning of June so the fire happened in February because I was just so afraid and A couple of days before I was being discharged from the rehabilitation hospital, the therapist, everybody thought it was time. Like I needed to see what I looked like. And someone brought in a mirror. Um, Man, that was overwhelming. Um, To to see my head and the, the damage and, you know, all I kept thinking was how are my sons gonna be afraid of me? How, you know, are they gonna not want their mommy to go anywhere with them? They were in elementary school. A lot of emotions, um, but over time and lots of patience on my family's part and on my children's, um, I slowly, very slowly learned that I could rise above it.
1: And that you definitely have, Gina. Uh... As someone who is in the community myself, you are a huge instrumental part of helping a lot of our survivors, um, not just survive but right thrive after their injury. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, I guess I, you know, the injury happened. Um, you know, you lost Fred today. Um, you're married, I think Rachel said, of fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Um, so you are definitely not only surviving but thriving both personally, right, and and Absolutely. with those around you, Um, I'm sure time was a big factor, but what are some of those resources and things that helped you kind of along the way?
2: Um, My very first World Burn Congress. uh, So the fire was 2003. My very first one was in North Carolina um, in 2004. And first, I remember walking in the door and there was this older gentleman in the wheelchair, Tom Edge. Uh, Most of us know his name or you've met him or you've had the privilege to meet him. And I walked in that door and my sister was with me. She was my caretaker. So she kind of hung came with me wherever I needed to go. Um, and I, I must've looked like I was ready to bolt because this gentleman, wheels up to me and says, where are you going? And I said, I don't belong here. This, no way, like, no way. These people are so much worse than I, like that's not even fair to them. And Tom just looked at me and said, don't you dare do that. I don't care if you've got an inch scar, full body, we don't care get in there. And he was he was my first moment of being at World Burn. Throughout my 2003 though, everybody kept talking about the Phoenix Society and I was so injured. I couldn't get to Boston uh, hospitals on the night they had like a sore meeting or a group meeting with burn survivors. I just was so injured. And it's, it's about an hour and a half away from my home in Cranston and drive into Boston at that hour it's just not nice um so but for a whole year all i heard about was the phoenix society and this incredible place and and it's open to everybody and so i was very fortunate um one of the local foundations sponsored me to go and my sister and that was my moment of my god first of all i'm not alone and i obviously i knew there were other station survivors but it was just amazing um and very slowly, like life, just started to feel okay again. Uh, I can't say enough about what the Phoenix sighting meant for me, and what it's. But I'm. I always want to give back. Um, the SOAR Program is super important to me. I help with the Wednesday night chats when I can. Um, everybody should know that it exists because it's it's truly life saving and you don't survive this alone, you just don't. You have to have the support. I was very blessed to have an incredible support system here at home, but also with the Phoenix Society.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely, and I mean, I love that you were you did get connected, you know, yeah. so quickly after mm-hmm. your injury. I mean, a year later to yeah. go to your first Phoenix Roeburn Congress mm-hmm. is so powerful, yeah. especially early on.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I know one thing, you know, we know from survivors from the fire, but just in general, survivors can go on to develop PTSD after their injury. And I just kind of wanted to ask you about that and how it is going into buildings even today and going, you know, big crowds of people and how how that is for you today.
2: Um, I have to, I will say that I've been very fortunate to not ha- have experienced PTSD um on a level that I've heard other people experience it um going out into crowds restaurants 20 years later first thing I do is look is look for the exits and the sprinkler systems and if I don't see anything I, it's not that important uh, it just isn't um I'm not staying there I definitely go to concerts and yes there's crowds um but I'm so so well aware, um, of where everything is,
4: mm-hmm.
2: it just, um, it's ingrained in me. It's ingrained in my children. Now they're adults, but it's ingrained in them. Um, <coughs> excuse me, I'm sorry. Um, that's important. I
1: know is. we had Amy on here <clears throat> at the very beginning and Amy and, uh, our friends at NFSA, um, and an FPA, I'll talk, talk about, you know, the the sprinklers and making sure you know where the exits are. And yeah. until you're in it or until you've experienced something around it, I think mm-hmm. it's not something that we do. as like common nature. Mm-hmm. But I remember just after that act, you know, just after that uh, episode, my husband and I went to a concert in a, an older theater here in Florida. And I remember looking around, like not seeing sprinklers, but knowing like we, I was right next to the exit door, but like the fear that you experience when you like, and I, I would have never done that had I not talked to Amy and, you know, all of our partners about how important it is to like, check the exits, make sure you know the way out and know, are there sprinklers? Because I remember thinking like, I don't know. And I, I don't think I would have done that had I not um, had a chance to to speak with you with Amy about
2: that I look back at some of the bars and the clubs I've been in to listen to music here in Providence and in Cranston I scare myself like my god I was in that building you know um I never crossed my mind I was just going to go listen Mm -hmm. to some music um boy does that change really quick (laughs) it changed Mm -hmm. quick but um so this.
1: <clears> the Station nightclub fire was the fourth deadliest at um, a nightclub in US history, and we now know that the numerous violations of existing codes contributed to the severity of the, the fire. Um, Amy, um, you have done a lot of work in this area um, with some advocacy efforts and lessons that were learned from this tragedy. Would you mind speaking a little bit about kind of some of the work in this area that, that has been done or, or the work that has to be done? <laughs>
3: Yeah, well, I, I think um, unfortunately it takes sometimes these massive uh, disasters to inch forward in in prevention. Right? It's frustrating. Mm-hmm. Um, we've known that fire sprinklers are saving property in in commercial buildings for a long time, um, but the 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 willingness to make change sometimes uh, doesn't happen until this something that this tragic happens, which is very sad. And we saw it 10 years later uh, with another group that we were able to connect the survivors in Rhode Island uh, with the KISS survivors in Brazil. Um, And the the advocate voices here have made a difference. Um, Gina and her friends like Rob and Joe have advocated for Tax Incentive Act, mm-hmm. um, through NFSA and NFPA and others, Home Fire Sprinkler Coalition, advocating for, um, tax incentives so people can retrofit older buildings uh, with fire sprinklers, um, so they can, uh, have their patrons be safe because no one ever expects this is going to happen to them until it does. And then, um, it's, it's life altering and destructive. I think the unique thing that happened in Rhode Island, uh, from my perspective, was that the community outpouring of support, uh, they looked beyond just the immediate needs and they looked at the long-term requirements of the survivors and what they would need. Uh, people like Dennis Murphy and uh, Reverend John Holt um, were instrumental in helping um, they, We we kind of showed up one day. Um, yeah. uh, several weeks later, they had a special uh, place. I think it was a car lot, wasn't it? An old yes. uh, used car. So survivors and families mm-hmm. could go there to find resources. And our board president at the time, Frank McGonigal, lived in Swansea, Mass, very close. And so we just went and we said, this is who we are. We think we can be helpful. Uh, our community is here ready when you are. And they took us up on that. And <laughs> Frank Frank became a, a advisor uh, to that committee who uh, managed those funds. Um, and that's why there was, eight. I think 18 survivors were able to come yeah. to World Burn within mm-hmm. a year. And some even came within, I think it was eight months yes. uh, to Cleveland, which is unheard of, right? To, mm-hmm. to have that connection and resources to get people connected. So the advocacy happened on both sides. It happened on the prevention side later down the road. Um, And I think it was the 15th anniversary. We celebrated the Tax Incentive Act. It took us 15 Mm -hmm. years to get Mm -hmm. that done. Um, And the voices of Rhode Island were instrumental and the congressmen there to have that happen in our country. On the flip side, I think it also really... Shifted people's thinking about the long-term recovery. We were able to really bring in resources. Uh, we brought in financial resources uh, from uh, Susan Bradley, who was an expert in sudden money because there were there were litigation here, and we wanted to help people understand mm-hmm. how that might impact them and prepare them for that um, and the trauma that it. That can trigger. So we we try some really unique things there. We did a mental health training um, for all of the mental health providers in Rhode Island. If you can imagine, Rhode Island's a small state. So I don't I can't remember how many organizations showed up, but um, experts like uh, Megan Bronson and Sam Price and. Jim Bosch and myself uh, helped them understand what burn recovery would look like so they could be supportive uh, to the community long term. So it was a privilege and an honor to grow and learn with Rhode Island and how we could do it better. Um, it formed great relationships with Spalding Healthcare at Spalding Rehab and Mass General. Uh, I think they saw the value of uh, peer support uh, mm-hmm. through that. So. So, out of tragedy has come some really amazing things, and I I want to shout out to Gina also for being a tireless advocate for a memorial. Um, uh, she and a few handful of others were uh, a dog with a bone on that oh, one, and, um, and, and and it's a beautiful and it's a beautiful uh, remembrance. And Thank I you. just mm-hmm. think that was I know that was a lot of work, yeah. uh, emotional and and physical and not hearing all this stuff.
2: It it really was. <laughs>
0: Can and it's the Station Fire Memorial. Do I have? Yep, that
2: station. Room? We call it the Station Fire Memorial Park. All right, tell us a little bit more about that. Um, in its in it, the day the fire happened, and months afterwards, it became this just tragic ground. There were, were makeshift crosses that were made for the one hundred. Well, at the initial, it was ninety nine. The hundredth person passed away at the end of uh, May of 2003. Mm-hmm. Um, so there were these makeshift crosses, uh, just stuff. People would come, teddy beers, just all kinds of things, alcohol, coffee cups. And it, it was just, tra- it made it more tragic looking.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: And so for years, there had been a group trying to acquire the land, um, it does, wasn't quite working for them. They were the, they were the victim's family members um, and they didn't allow at that time survivors to be on their board um, because we were really separate. There were the survivor families and, and, and victim families and they didn't wanna be near us at all. It took a long time, but something happened on that board in 2010 and several people left So myself and another friend approached them and said, look, we've raised this much money for the station um, family fund, which was a fund that helped people live on a daily basis. Let us help you. Our survivor story is raising money. Let us help you. Took them a little bit of time and and thankfully they let us on the board and we struggled a little bit. Um, I didn't know I had it in me, but every time, someone was talking not so nice about what we were doing or how we were gonna acquire the land. I was just like, a, a, I have a pit bull. I, I was like a pit bull um, because I'm like, no, that we're not stealing the land from anybody. We're not taking it by eminent domain. And eventually the owner of the land heard me on a radio talk show. And within three days, he signed the land over to us. And he said, I'm only doing this because I have followed you. I have followed your story. I've heard what you've done. I would have never trusted anybody else. And he gave us a time frame. We had like we had to finish it within ten years to build a memorial. If not, we had to give it back to him, and he would build one. Um, we thankfully we got it accomplished, but it was it was um, an effort on so many people's part. Um, our local construction teams, union halls, uh, just everybody. I couldn't have done it. The fundraising—we raised two million dollars with the help of a, a professional fundraiser because um, I, I, my story can sell, sell, but not that much. <laughs> um, so we were very fortunate, and the donations just came from everywhere. We were really fortunate, and in the end, on May May twenty-first of twenty seventeen, we built this incredible park. And as tragic. As that night was, if you walk on that property today, it it's pure peace.
4: Mm-hmm. There's
2: you don't feel that bad energy. Um, and some you know, I don't know, people don't believe in that kind of stuff, but there's truly a difference when you walk yeah. on that property today. It's just so peaceful and it's beautiful, and and so I I my mission is to make sure it stays that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I'm there constantly making sure it's clean. I clean if there's dead flowers balloons, whatever i I cleaned it all up. we worked too hard, and um so for as long as I'm standing, i'll always that'll always be my my place. Hmm.
1: I love that well i it was, one of my questions was how you know you honor those lives lost, and that sounds mm-hmm. like the memorial is just yeah. I'm sure one of those ways. Um, are there other ways that you like to remember those like Fred um, yeah. after after the you know the accident happened Yes.
2: Yeah. I am so vocal about them. And I think that's part of why I don't have PTSD. Um, this tragic thing happened and lost some incredible people. And I've learned so much about the 100 over 20 the 20 years. Man, like the world is a sadder place because they're not here. They were just fun and good people. Um, we'll never understand the why. So I am pretty vocal about remembering them. Um, this week, we've, I've done a lot of uh, interviews, and it's just, you know, I tell people, please never forget them. Just always, mm-hmm. we call them our 100 angels, and keep them in your mind, you know, remember that. Remember that 100 people lost their lives, and a lot of it was because of stupidity and money, and, mm-hmm. you know, but, um, yeah, it's um, important for me that no one forgets them. mm
0: mm-hmm. yeah. And, and you talked about, you know, doing those interviews and sharing your story and Gina and Amy, I know you're both advocates. So what do you both hope to get from sharing your story? Amy, I know yours isn't, you know, related to the, the station club fire, but what, what do you hope to get from, from sharing your story?
3: Yeah, I I think it is, um, change, uh, positive change and, um, awareness. Uh, so I, um, Sharing the story just to share it doesn't you know mm-hmm. give me meaning, but sharing it with a purpose uh, whether it's um, acceptance and inclusion of those that look a little different mm-hmm. uh, or if it is around the needless loss of fire uh, because we uh, value profit over human life um, mm-hmm. you know the we we know that if we put sprinklers in new homes, that uh, people could get out and live, and uh, when there's a house fire. So every time I see a new development going up, <laughs> and there aren't sprinklers in it because we're not willing to spend a dollar or something a square mm-hmm. foot, um, that's really frustrating. And so mm-hmm. it keeps me passionate about it and um, energized uh, to share the stories of this community and my own
2: i think that's paramount like we just can't stop um in rhode island there are always somebody in in this little state going before our house representatives asking them to downgrade the fire codes that got put in place because of the station fire it infuriates me why would you want that hanging over your head because you saved a couple of bucks uh, not putting that sprinkler system in or. Um, the proper lighting over fire exits, there's so many things. Um, it just blows my mind that people are want that. Mm. so I am nope not gonna happen while I'm around. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, I love that you continue to to work for that prevention and um, in terms of and I guess maybe this question's for Amy, um, what do you believe needs to continue to be done to prevent accidents like, accents like this? Um, I think we all know that raising awareness is a, a big step in the right direction, but uh, there's more to be done, uh, Amy, as we know. So do you wanna share a little bit about that?
3: yeah i think it's a it's coordinated effort and it's one of the reasons why we really value our partnerships with people like nfpa and nfsa and home fire sprinkler coal and so there's an education component there's a consumer awareness you know i can't tell you how many people i've worked with or have worked at phoenix that have tried to sprinkler their home mm-hmm. but because it's not a mandatory thing the market isn't there so they can't do it so mm-hmm. uh, the home builders like to say well They can choose to have it if they want, but that's not really true (laughs) Um, because uh, if there isn't a market for it, we don't have people to provide it. Mm -hmm. And it's they're just they're not available to put them in um, on a one off basis. But if it's a requirement and it's it's cheaper all around and it's, you know, it's like the right it's like having a handrail on your stairs. You know, if it has to be there, it has to be there and they make it work. Um, So. So again, I think there, there's some political, um, issues here, um, around that. Um, it's a long road. I have always said, uh, fire and burn prevention as far as codes and standards is a long game, not a short game. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, you know, the fire sprinklers, uh, we, we did some work on fire safe cigarettes, which, you know, had some impact. And so there, there's, a. There's a long process here and it takes united voices to have mm-hmm. it happen and, and trying to find those uh, coalitions of people that can get behind issues. And, and the community seems to be very excited to get involved. We put out action alerts around, they're trying to take our fault circuit interrupters out of the building code, cause it's gonna save them 700 bucks a house. Um, so those are things that you have to. We have to add our voice to as a community. I think, and it, it gives me purpose, and I think it does others uh, oh, yeah. to to do that. So if we can be a
2: convener and
3: connector uh, for people to add their voice to these issues, that's that's what we can bring. Uh, I think this community can bring the why, um, and the fire prevention experts can tell us how to do it the
0: best mm-hmm. way, but we can say why is so important. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I mean, I think we can all agree that sometimes it's easy to think, well, I'm invincible. It's not going to happen to me. And that's why we do encourage survivors to share their story, whether you are going to your House of Representatives and standing in front of them, or Mm -hmm. if it's just sharing your story online. Mm -hmm. We share the story for a lot of reasons, but one of them is certainly advocacy to show Mm -hmm. this can happen and it does happen. And just because you may think it's not going to happen to you doesn't doesn't make you <laughs> per, against, you know, it ever happening. Yeah.
3: Well, and I think the other piece that Gina brought up that I want to highlight here is, you know, she talked about uh, a positive recovery part of it because she got connected early and saw that there are there was hope up there, right? There's there's others that have gone through this. Um, so we have a long road to hoe yet to get people connected to these community-based services from the acute phase into home. And that's, mm-hmm. as you guys both know, Phoenix yeah. Society is really zeroing in on that, that juncture between hospital and home. And how can we get people connected earlier to this community, working with our hospital partners? Because um, they don't have to do it all by themselves either. Um, and there's a lot of new resources out here in the burn Mm -hmm. community that we're trying to connect people to again um earlier because i think we hear at world burn congress so many times people show up 20 years later ever having struggled for a very long time we get questions a lot
1: from survivors right how can i stay involved how can i get involved Uh, i think it's really important that we highlight you know uh, Phoenix Society does regularly send out those action alerts like Amy mentioned. Mm-hmm. So um, whether you're in Rhode Island or I know there's regular, you know, across the country really. So
4: um,
1: continuing to, you know, visit Phoenix Society's website and subscribing to those emails. I know it, it sounds like we're we're pulling out that marketing pitch, but it's true. Um, if you yeah. want to stay connected and learn how you can continue to advocate, sometimes it's as simple as signing up right to to lend your voice, and mm-hmm. um, so I think that's really important to highlight of like how it can be done, um, because you know sometimes we we're like yeah I want to do it, but how can I yep. lend my voice to that action? Right. So
3: yeah, um, we have a, a is- new one uh, that we'll be pushing out soon, right, Rachel? Around uh, mm-hmm. we're trying to promote more dollars towards burn research and Mm long-term outcomes. Um, So that'll be coming in the next few weeks. We'll need voices uh, to try to allocate some resources to this community, which I think is underserved. Um, So there's lots of ways that people can get involved uh, and we'd love to have you.
2: Mm -hmm. And go ahead, Gina, sorry. I, um, I think it's so important that from that hospital phase even if the person isn't ready at that time, hand them a brochure or something that says, don't lose this when you're ready. Um, it really will change your world. And that's my local hospital, um, the therapists and people there are so, been so good about it. Um, I get calls weekly, um, you know, do you mind talking to this person? They're they're not ready for an in-person visit, but they you know would love to just chat and then maybe go from there. I, it's so important to get them, hear about it right in you know in that critical phase
1: Mm yeah i want to actually take it back here just a moment too because i know um when you you shared your story um i didn't know about you losing your hair um completely Mm -hmm. until a a chat just recently Mm -hmm. and um one of our peer support chats focused all about wigs Mm -hmm. and um Gina educated me (laughs) to to the ninth degree about um the different types of wigs and and how she um and it was so impactful for me because I you know that is something that not only are you working with the image of your scars but you know you've lost part of your identity with your hair um and so in terms of like accepting your scars how did you make peace with that i know you shared some really powerful sentiments in that chat that night of like sometimes Mm -hmm. i don't wear my wig if i don't want to um and you're not today which um but can we spend a minute to just talk about um what that's like right of how you overcame um i know it took me a while to just show my scars in general but i think it would be much harder if i didn't have this Mm -hmm. this lock of hair to Mm -hmm be able to kind of, um, overcome that. So I'd love if yeah. you just spend a moment and tell us a little bit about not just your, your hair, right. But your scars in general.
2: Sure. Um, the hair was, it was right up there with losing the ear and not wearing earrings again. Um, I loved cutting my hair, letting it grow out, cutting it. Then I'd color it. It was purple, blue. And I just, my walk in my hairdresser, thank God she's my cousin. She didn't kick me out, but she'd be like, Oh God, what do you want? So losing my hair was, um, it was big um, when when my head. It took about a year for the wounds on my head to heal, so I couldn't wear anything other than um, well, mostly there were gauze on my head. But I, if I had to go somewhere, I put a cap on. Um, it was awful. The staring, the, the looks that people would give you just it's soul crushing because you you feel so bad that you're you think you're hurting them, but inside you know you're dying. Um, my first time trying on wigs was god-awful. Um, we went to a local, there's a local salon here in Cranston and, um, they've got beautiful stuff, beautiful wigs, they, the beautiful salon. I, 35 years old, I wasn't wearing a wig, like, oh my God, <laughs> but I didn't mm-hmm. have an option. So I remember trying to try them on to the person I looked like before. Um, I wanted that same haircut, that same style. And my cousin, the hairdresser, said, you need to stop. Let's try something so crazy on you um, that, you know. And so we did, little by little. Um, I found the okay color, the okay length. Um, but they were so uncomfortable. It's uh, had all the netting inside.
4: Mm-hmm. And
2: some people are fortunate where they had, they'll have enough hair where you can, connect the combs to it or something under the wig. I had nothing. So there was tape constantly on my head. Then it would rip the skin. It was it was awful. I don't remember who exactly it was that told me about these prosthetic wigs. Uh, that might have been around 2005 or six. Uh, um, and then, you know, okay, I'll, let me investigate that. We'll Boy, oh boy, yeah, they're beautiful, but they're not cheap. (laughs) Um, They are not. Uh, Mine, because of the length that I get are about $5,000. But in 20 years, I've only ordered three of them. They last so long. And if you're really good about taking care of them, my oldest one is about 10 years old now. Um, And people have no clue that it's a wig. It's made out of silicone on the inside. It's quite a process uh, to be made. And then it just vacuum seals to my head. I mean, I drive a convertible. It doesn't move. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I'm also being like, I don't, I wouldn't go in the water with it. I don't sleep with it at night. So it it stays looking good, but it's an adjustment. Um, someone's so what you shared
1: that, was it, it doesn't, it's not covered by insurance, which yeah. I had no idea, which yeah. as someone that, you know, hasn't, you think that's, you know, a natural part of um, kind of your injury is looking for the ways to kind of recover Mm -hmm. after. And um, I know you had shared that with the group of like, if you have cancer and you need a wig, it's something that's covered, but Mm -hmm. it's not, it's not with, and that really um, impacted me because I was, you know, that as a survivor, that can be tough, but um, it's a part of Mm -hmm. sometimes you just want to try to wear it.
2: (laughs) Yes. Yes. It's so hard because when I tell people about it, no, who are Listen, I couldn't afford my first one. Someone helped me raise the money for it, you know? Um, but it makes me feel so much better. So it was, it's worth the money. Um, I've never, I've had hairdressers come up to me and say, wow, what a pretty cut, what a pretty color. And, oh, thanks. It's a wig deal. Huh? You know, what? <laughs> um, but it's, it is, I, I don't know why it's not covered by insurance. Um it's prosthetic, doctors have written notes and letters to the insurance companies.
3: Another uh, another case for some advocacy there. You know, yeah. I think mm-hmm. sometimes uh, doctor's letters aren't as public as the uh, advocacy that the insurance company might have. So, I mean, I, I think that is part of the challenge in Burns is understanding mm-hmm. these long-term needs on a bigger Mm -hmm. scale so we can have the data to then go say, hey, this is that Mm -hmm. cancer can have it, but burns Mm -hmm. can't. What's that about? So I think those are things, you know, pressure garments are another one, you know, trying to understand um, there's great groups raising money to pay to have them donated, but Mm -hmm. why should they have to do that? (laughs) So, but, but getting the data to show that problem we haven't gotten there yet in Burns. It's still very focused on the acute when they're still in the hospital getting paid. Right. So we have some work to do. Um, but I think this community, again, with the stories and understanding, and as we get better about collecting information and data around those challenges, um, I think we can hopefully have some impact there.
1: Gina, when you shared with that with me, I was stunned. Right. And I would have no idea because it's not something I've had to deal with directly, but, um, it's things like that that you don't even think of um mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. overcoming but you have um you do have your prosthetic wigs but you also wear um your your head your <laughs> scarves and i know you mentioned having different colors and types um how do you choose right like like how do you decide what you want to wear
2: that day and,
1: and go into it, it is. you
2: know i've got one that matches everything <laughs> my mother's like how do you do that um, i i buy i've got a whole bunch of colors and my shirts match those. Um, <laughs> I really kind of—that's how I built my world. I'm so comfortable like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, my grandchildren—there's a total of nine of them. And wow! Every single one of—thank you. Every single one of them has gone through the phase of, "Why are you wearing that wig? Like, <laughs> uh, take that off! Take that off!" My three-year-old grandson just did it at Christmas time. I went to my sisters, and you now got you felt like getting dressed up. I walked in the door, and he looked at me, and said take that off. I said, well, I, I said I don't have my hat with me. I'll go get mine. Oh, I'm not wearing a hat, but thank you. You know, um, it's okay. Like first time going out w- with a cap or um, it's a little uncomfortable, but then you think about the big scheme of life. I could have died. You know, I might not be walking into that store or the wherever, um, but I love funky colors. This one's kind of boring. Um,
1: but I, I have like
2: it. really it's good, bright ones. it got some
1: nice grays to match <laughs> you today. <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah. You know, it's just, I guess it's all perspective. Um, you have to look at the big picture. You know, you I just love that stay. you said
1: that, right? Yeah. I was like, we all have things to yeah. that we deal with. And sometimes you're like, why? Why am I? But I'm here, right? I'm here to tell mm-hmm, the story. Yeah. And that can be a really, I think it took me a lot of time to like finally get to that place, yeah. but it mm-hmm. takes time for sure. It yeah. does.
2: It does. I tell everybody that I meet it's patience. dig deep for the patients because this yeah. is not, they discharged you from the hospital and you're all better. Right. It, it's mm-hmm. almost it's yeah. Yeah. That's that hospital, you walk out of that hospital and you're like, Oh my God, I'm going back in because it, you're safe. To, you're safe. You feel so safe. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, everybody that I've talked with through the soul program and I just say, just patience. don't, don't, don't rush this. Mm-hmm. Um, Listen to the doctors, listen to your therapist. It, it's, it'll it'll happen over time. You'll get there.
1: And it's hard to do. I yeah. don't always want to listen to what they <laughs> say because I don't like it, right? Well, of
2: course, of course. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. They told me I probably wouldn't drive again. They didn't think I'd have use of my hands, which that would have really been really bad because I'm Italian and we use our hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's so many things that the doctors said, you might not, you might not. Yeah. And when I go home and I uh, no, I'm going to do double time on physical therapy because I'm doing that. Um, I came home from the hospital in June and they're like, oh, don't even think about driving. You don't have control of this or that. And I think October I got behind the wheel of a car and started (laughs) driving around the neighborhood. And one of my fellow survivors ratted me out to the surgeons. I was like, oh, <laughs> man. <laughs> He's like, he said, I was just jealous how?" because he couldn't drive. It. And he was waiting for his prosthetic arm to come. He's like, that's not fair. And I'm like, oh, you're going have to rat me out, you know. But every time those doctors told me, no, I, we don't think so, uh, that wasn't going to happen. And I had two little boys to raise, They yeah. had to see that their mom, it, we were going to survive this. that's
4: beautiful
3: gina do you uh you you when you were talking about your kids it made me think of my kids and they were born after my burn injury but how how did you because i just i they're just such wonderful boys and um how do you think this impacted them in a way that wouldn't they wouldn't be who they were without this. Do you know what I'm saying? Absolutely. Uh, and, and their compassion and their mm-hmm. their acceptance. I, I just, uh, I, can you talk a little bit
2: about yeah. that? Sure. I think it right from the start, um, so I'm nuts. I was a patient at China's Children's Hospital in Boston because the other hospitals had run out of room. Um, so it was very unique. There were four adults in this little, in this children's hospital. On the weekends when my sons would come and visit, they got bored. They were little. They were six and nine. They don't want to hang out, you know, in this sick room. And so um, social workers, uh, nurses, people would come along and take them to play in the playroom. And there were other burned children there. Uh, They just, that was, they were just kids. They were playing. They never even, I was so scared when I, when I was adjusting to life and uh, when I was home and I thought, oh my God, I don't want them to see my head and the scars. And and one, and one time they did. And my son looked at me and goes, why, why, are, you, why are you nervous? Now, he was he was, he was the older one, so he was nine. He's like, Mom, it's okay. It's it's still you. And it's like, man, they, they don't see that.
4: Mm-hmm. And
2: Shriners definitely helped with that. I, I give them a lot of credit. Yeah. Um, they were also two little boys that would go back to their elementary school every Monday and report to their classroom how Mom <laughs> was doing. Mm-hmm. Um my son Nicholas, the youngest, while he was dealing with me, he was in first grade. Um, he had a little friend. Her name was Allison. And she had a brain tumor. And she had it since kindergarten. And But she was OK. She was you know, chugging along. What I didn't know is while I was sick, she was getting sicker. And so mm-hmm. one of his visits to the hospital, my dad was with him. And, and he said, Nick's got something to tell you. And he told me that Allison had passed. Mm-hmm. From the minute Nick met Allison, he was already compassionate. He was that little boy in elementary school. Let me help you with your coat. Let me, you know, he was just so there was something in Nick. Yeah. Alex is the oldest and he's the protector. He's like, oh, no, don't, don't go there. That's my mom. Um, they just grew up in this world. Um, they, they didn't really have a choice. <laughs> yeah, um right they were around other burn survivors, they were around my survivor friends from the fire, whether they were injured or not. It just taught them so much. So when they were mm-hmm. in school and, and someone had a disability, whatever it was, my sons didn't see it, you know, and but they right. taught their friends that too. They've got a great group of friends and I don't know if it was because they were little reporters back in elementary school. <laughs> but, and, yeah, they've got a great group of friends that, you know, they're, they're pretty good guys and Mm -hmm. all compassionate. And so it it definitely took a village. It took a village, the teachers, my family, but, um, my boys grew up to be incredible men and that's all I could ask for. Mm -hmm.
1: Gina, you talk a lot about, um, other, other folks that were in the fire, right? It sounds like you've stayed relatively close. Um, do you want to talk about a little bit about kind of the, the other burn survivors that, you know, you've connected with since, Sure. I'm sure there's a lot of people that at the time of the accident you didn't know, but you're very close with now.
2: Yeah, um, I didn't really know anybody. Um, I, I honestly, Fred, I knew him that night because he was my boyfriend. But um, yeah, later on, um, I started talking to people and, and mostly over the phone because I was still so injured and couldn't go out. And but slowly these friendships formed. Some have withstood the test of time. Others, I think, ran their course and everybody went their separate ways, which that's life in any situation. Um, but I am so incredibly grateful for the friendships that I have formed. Um, I have two guy friends. One is my friend Donovan Williams, and he's a survivor, and he's been to one, maybe two, World birds. He's just such a character, but he <laughs> lost his eyesight. Um, he's a graphic designer who that didn't wow. stop him, the blind. He went back to work. <laughs> He, you know, um, he had three kids to raise. And that's what he said. Ah, can I, I got to go to work. I've got three kids yeah. to raise. Um, I, I, he is a brother. And when I met my husband, I had to tell him about Donovan. And I said, listen, you got to like him. You got to love him. <laughs> go he does. <laughs> and then the other gentleman, his name is Jody King. He, um, His brother, Tracy King, died in the fire. He's one of the angels. We had such a connection because um his brother Tracy was my first kiss. Mm-hmm. And so when I met him through all of this, Jody was not there that night. I shared he told me who he was, and I'm like, oh my God, your brother was my first kiss, and that just solidified a relationship that's and yeah, I said to my husband, he's not going anywhere. Um, <laughs> um and there's some women, um, we're just so connected and I wouldn't change it. I, I wouldn't, this awful thing happened, but I'm so glad to have these people in my life. I can't imagine them not being there. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, it definitely, um, Amy at World Burn in 2004, I remember weeding with a psychiatrist in, in that room
4: mm-hmm. and
2: she told us what we had, this connection could be kind of tragic um, or, mm-hmm. or not so healthy. She was, she was right. She was right at the time though we were like oh mm-hmm. yeah we're leaving you're crazy yeah um but she was right because there were some that just were not healthy mm-hmm. and I have eliminated a lot of people um mm-hmm. their stories of um how they've chosen to live mm-hmm. it's just not for me and um, I want to live a positive life and remember my 100 in a positive yeah. light, you know and mm-hmm. so I'm yeah, We definitely, I definitely have removed quite a few. Yeah. I think that's um,
3: uh, one of the things that for me is the, the growth through trauma, we all do it so differently. And mm-hmm. uh, whether you're burned in a single incident or in a, a big group like you, getting into that big room with so many different perspectives mm-hmm. uh, just changes it for me. Yeah. <laughs> just, I mean, when you're ready to hear it, right? Yeah. Um, because you're so focused on your own trauma and your own loss and oh, yeah. your own story that you, you may be in that room, but you're not hearing it. Right. And then but when you can open up to it and say, Oh, Oh, Okay, <laughs> I guess I got it pretty good. Um, th- that was that was eye opening for me. Um, yeah. And I at that time I was even working on the burn it, but to go to my yeah. first world burn and then start to hear these different stories and mm-hmm. then going, oh, I remember that phase. I remember mm-hmm. when I was there. It just kind of changed the perspective mm-hmm. for me.
2: My one, I I want to say my first time meeting you, Amy, was at Rhode Island Hospital. You and Barbara Quayle were there. And we were in this auditorium and yeah. I remembered you talking about um, being angry at your mom and your family, like, or you would have these outbursts, things. And I recognized that I was doing that same exact mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And and now, so when I counsel people, I'm like, just be prepared. And if there's a family member sitting there, it's like, yeah. try not to take it personally. We just go through these phases. Yeah. Um,
3: You're saying I and mean, you know they're not going to leave you. <laughs> so so true.
4: You can go first. <laughs> right. right. Yeah.
2: Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's um that's why this group is so important because yeah. um each of us can we learn I learn something all the time. I really yeah. do.
3: Yeah, I re, I I still so remember that time uh Barbara and I I think we're yeah. doing uh training for the hospital team on kind mm-hmm. of social skills and image yep. enhancement so they could yeah, uh, right. help. Um mm-hmm. and again, that they would have never done that. Yeah. Uh, without kind of the experience Mm -hmm. and the resources and the focus uh that Mm -hmm. came with uh what happened and they wanted to do good they wanted to do good and and that that team was amazing um so yeah the the connections that were made are long lasting, you know, having world burn in Rhode Island twice, yeah, uh, that the, fire, the fire department and, and, mm-hmm. and slowly getting closer to those that were impacted on that side mm-hmm. of the equation. Uh, that's been a long road for them too. So.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Our first one, I think in Rhode Island is, is that when the Brazil uh, group came or maybe it was the second? I, I think it was know. the, sec- the second. second one.
3: Maybe the second one. Yeah. That, that was, was- it yeah, yeah. was
2: amazing. Yeah, it really was, and we took them out to the few of them out to the site.
3: Yeah,
2: um, that forged a friendship, a mm-hmm. thousands of miles away, right in another country. Yeah, um, yeah it just it's amazing what this what a tragic thing can bring. Mm-hmm.
4: Mm-hmm. Definitely.
2: <sighs> Well, well,
0: I know. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> nope. We're on the same page. I know we're we're getting close to our time here, but um, we do have just a few quick final questions. Yes. So, I want to first just ask Eugenia, what is your favorite part of being a peer supporter and helping others?
2: Um, just being around that person and um hoping that even if they heard one word I said. Um, and then months later, we're at a, um, a burn group together, and they'll say, "Remember, I, you said this to me," and I'm like, "Oh yeah, that was good," <laughs> um, you know. Or, or like a year later, all of a sudden, that person wants to become a peer supporter. Um, I love doing it. Um, we're not going to reach them all. We're not going to get them all, but um, it's a wonderful program, and proud to be a part of it. I really am. Um, to be able to give back to this community and to a newborn survivor in that moment when they think life is done. And when I tell people I got married after my injuries with the women, they're like, What? Someone was okay with that? Yeah. <laughs> Just be picky, be picky. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's you know, it's uh, the children have been fun. Um meeting some, you know, the children. One little girl now attends World, she has attended World Burn. She was from uh, Nigeria when her, where her accident happened. And I had a wig on my first time meeting her and I, she wanted to see it because she was going to be bald too. I remember taking that wig off at China's Children's Hospital. Here it is. Um, at one of the world birds, the first in California, I was shocked. There she was, there was her dad she had just got her first wig. She was so excited. And I, I was so proud, like to see that moment. So yeah, mm-hmm. I do it for a lot. Long- <laughs> Those are my moments. That's beautiful.
0: Well, I know our community loves you and you have touched so, so many lives. Thank you very much. You it means you.
3: a lot. Thank you.
1: Mm-hmm. So Gina, as we wrap up, we do have two final questions, but so we ask all of the folks that are on our show. So Um, if you did your homework, you know, these are coming, but Uh the first, the first, um, self care for Gina, what does that look like? And, um, maybe you don't do enough of it. Maybe you do a lot of it. What does that look like, Gina?
2: Um, I'm slowly doing that for myself. I did not in the beginning. Um, it's probably only this last year as the 20th year was approaching that I decided it was my time. Um, I. In 2015, bought a house in New Hampshire, little house. Um, I run away there. That's what I do for self-care. No one knows me. Uh, Well, no, I shouldn't say that. They slowly learned that I was involved in this fire, but they they leave me alone. They leave me alone. Um, So that's what I do. I run away, I get my nails done. Um, I got a great nail tech. She can make me a couple of nails because they didn't grow back. Um, Stuff like that, Uh, listening to music. Most of the time, she'll hear uh, music in my house, not a TV. Those are my moments. I love,
1: that.
2: I love
0: that. Well, and our final question is: What do you do to celebrate your burn anniversary? I know, obviously, you share yours yeah. with yeah. so many, <laughs> but do you have any special <laughs> plans or any annual plans that you always do?
2: I've always run away for the for the very first few. I've always uh, taken a trip or where somewhere out of Rhode Island. Um, But probably the last, well, since the park opened and maybe just before that, I decided I would stick around. Um, It's getting together with the bird survivors that I'm still close with uh, Monday night. Well, the site itself, the park will be very busy on Monday. And if this weather continues, then really it's going to be busy here. Um, So I'll be out there for the most part. I'll get to meet new people, see old friends. But then around six o'clock, there's a just a group of us that will go to this restaurant that's across the street that was instrumental the night of the fire. The fire had happened and they had just closed for the evening, but the owner of it opened it back up and it became a triage center.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um, so this restaurant means a lot to us. Um, we just we support him in everything. So we'll be there on, thir- um, on Monday night, just before 11 o'clock, we walk across the street to the site. Mm-hmm. And we're there. 1107 is when the life changed. Um, it's a quiet moment for us. Uh, a lot of tears, a lot of hugging. Um, that's what I'll do on the 20th. Um, on May 21st, because it's New England, I could not plan a memorial in February. Retrospect, if 75 degrees keeps up, I probably should have. <laughs> but didn't know that. Um, so we'll host an official memorial on May 21st at the site. I picked May 21st because that was the date of opening the park as well.
1: Yeah. That's
2: beautiful. beautiful. I I said to my sister and my mom today, um, is it okay that I'm not um, sad or depressed? Should I be? Am I doing something? Like, is this wrong? And my Mm -hmm. sister looked at me and said, if you told me you were sad and depressed, I'm going to be really mad at you. Because just, (laughs) you know, you know, yes, this thing happened, but look at what you've done, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and so that made me feel a little bit better. Well,
1: on behalf of, you know, Rachel myself and Phoenix Society, happy anniversary, first thank of all. And uh, we thank you for lending your voice to our podcast and okay. hopes that we can uh, continue to, to help you with that change that uh, we're looking for
2: thank you thank you for what you're doing for the community and these these young you know these girls this is super important so thank you for what you're doing thanks, We appreciate Gina.
0: It. thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of girls with grafts if you are enjoying this content please feel free to rate subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts this helps others find the show and we greatly appreciate it thanks again for listening and we'll catch you in the next episode